This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. And now I guess he feels a little bit emboldened. He must be careful with what he says. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, racism is essentially a white problem. For you to understand what racism is about, you're going to be so uncomfortable. As Christians, we love the homosexual and the transgender. Homosexuality is sin. You know, everybody's like, you taught that from school, everywhere, big business. You want to be successful? You want to be like Trump? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Push, 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 push. Step, step, step. Crush, crush, crush. This is Profane Faith a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, Profane Faith fam, here we are, here we are once again, once again, it's on, uh, yes, yes indeed, well, welcome back to the show, it is our season finale here uh, at Profane Faith for uh, season six, um, and uh, wow, what a season it has been, uh, a lot going on, and uh, oh, as like I say, there's always a lot going on, but uh, this season, I... Man, I it just there's there seems to be never a um what's the word I'm looking for? There never se- seems to be a a lessening, if you will, um of material that's out there. Um I'm sure by the time you listen to this, you will already have uh uh heard, you know, I think what is it, Alex Jones ended up having to spend <laughs> Or give money like forty-five million dollars uh, back to uh, you know to some of the, the the folks at Sandy Hook, some of the families of Sandy Hook. Uh, he said, "What was it that he said?" He said, "Um, oh man, he was. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. He said that it was fake and that it was set up. And uh, th- and there are still bumper stickers out there that people are driving with uh, that say, you know, uh, Alex Jones was right. That you know he believed that the Sandy Hook shooting, the mass shooting." Um, I forget how many kids and people he killed. It was in the in the high twenties, almost thirty folks. Um, was fake. It was set up, and this is actually an ongoing theory in in the QAnon conspiracy uh, world, if you will. Uh, that it was fake. It was set up, uh, and that it. it it, it didn't really happen. These were actors. These were paid actors and, and whatnot. So, yeah, just some foolishness. And so uh, some family sued him and they won. And a jury found that, uh, you know, found him guilty. So I'm, I'm glad at least some kind of justice is happening somewhere. Um, but what a season it's been, right? I mean, we've had, you know, the fall of Roe v. Wade. Uh, we have, you know, an ongoing assault on particularly women's bodies, contraception, LGBTQ2+, particularly POC, BIPOC folks. Um, you know, there's an ongoing rise in racism and just boldness. 
from white racism. Uh, they're not even hiding the shit anymore, man, right? It's it's just, it is out there and it is emboldened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, this major shift, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, religious uh, thought and, uh, you know, theological thought, you know, most seminaries are struggling right now in terms of, uh, you know, enrollment, uh, you know, and you got to ask the question who now has the money. I mean, you know, you got this inflation rate, uh, that's just going nuts and, uh, it's, it's intense and it's crazy. Uh, and so, yeah, here we are podcast season six heading into season seven. It's hard to believe, uh, this, uh, 2017, I started this thing. Uh, it's been five years exactly. And, um, wow, still going strong. So I just want to thank the listeners, the supporters, uh, for that. And, uh, just really thank, uh, folks who have, you know, just shown support through subscribing, through listening, emails, texts, um, all of those things, they, they are, they are good support. Um, I oftentimes feel like, you know, I am on an Island alone, <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and particularly, you know, the pandemic didn't help any. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it, in the academy, at least where I'm at in my institution, I don't necessarily have that departmental collegial, like, oh, okay, this is okay. We got it. We cool. None of that exists. I'm the only one left and there's no, no, nothing on the books to get anyone hired. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it begins to feel a little lonely out there. Uh, especially now that I'm not the, you know, the Christian darling <laughs> and speaking at all these little conferences and stuff. It's like, I completely fell off the map for, for everything. <laughs> at least that's the way I feel. I'm just sharing with y'all how I feel, uh, at the end here of season six. And, uh, oftentimes, you know, I'll just be vulnerable and, and open with y'all since y'all are vulnerable and open with me. Um, you know, I, I, it feels like I get overlooked. This is an ongoing thing. I talk, talk about this with my therapist, um, a lot in that, uh, you know, I feel overlooked, um, and, you know, passed over for things. And so it's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the many reasons I've, I've pulled back on social media just because it, I, I can't always be happy for everyone who has like, you know, the, the Instagram success or the, you know, the social media success stories and, and whatnot. And so I struggle with that. I don't know if any of y'all out there struggle. Y'all probably good and nice. And, uh, you know, you ain't got no, no, no heavy anxiety around that type of stuff. And so, um, but that's been a triggering point for me. And it's been, Something that, uh, you know, I've been trying to work on And a lot of it stems just from childhood, right? Being the only black kid in, in an all-white town growing up. Um, you know, if you, and also, if you, this is your first time listening, if you want to hear my story, I recorded it as the first episode of this podcast. So just scroll on back to episode one, season one. Um, but it stems back to me growing up in, you know, a small racist rural community in Texas and, um, you know, being left out, being looked over, being told you can't, um, I'm sure there's daddy issues there too, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, yeah, you know, and I, and I know from some other, I remember one time I was, um, uh, walking across the, you know, on our campus, we have this like little bridge that connects, you know, uh, things. And I was walking across that. Uh, I saw a student, this was years ago, but uh, you know, I saw a student, black student and I was like, Hey man, how you doing? He's like, what's up professor? 
you know, we chatted for a minute and, you know, he was just like, man, I was just like, man, I was, I'm just trying to hang on. And he's like, brother, he said, I wish I had your deck of cards. He said, if I had your deck of cards, I'd be all right. And that got me thinking. It's, it's stuck in my mind because I'm just like, man, I don't want to fall into the, the area that the grass is greener on the other side. Um, but it's very tempting. It's very tempting to fall into well, how come they got caught? How come they do that? How come, you know, nobody's got it perfect. And I got to keep reminding myself that, you know, but listening to him and just be like, man, if I had your deck of cards, right? And there's two sides to that coin. One, I I think that same thing about somebody else. Like, man, if I just had your deck of cards, if I had the access that you have, I had the money that you have, if I had the, you know, the, the, the next work resources that you had, I, I think I'd be better. Um, and... <laughs> You know, I'm living my ancestors' dreams, uh, and and in and in many cases, dreams that they didn't even know they could have. Okay, um, had to get a little beverage there. You know what I'm saying? Um, I won't do you like NPR and you know and drink right into the microphone. But you know, I I, I don't even know that our, my ancestors knew that they could have these dreams. <clears throat> um of somebody accomplishing what i've accomplished um so i have to keep coming back to home like what i've done but i you know it, it's been a struggle it's been a struggle i've been in a deep writing funk i haven't really written anything um in two years um and if you know me you know i used to put out shit left and right uh and now it's just kind of like a stalemate the pandemic hit and it was like poof i'm I am done. I, I don't even know, I, you know, I don't even know what to write about. I feel like anything I have to say can be said in like two paragraphs or less. Right. Um, you know, and that doesn't make good for good in the publisher parish, uh, Academy. Now, granted, yes, I'm tenured. Yes, I'm full, but, um, you know, one, I want to continue on some kind of research and scholarship. Uh, and number two, I also feel like the work that I built up, the work that I did for years around hip hop and Christianity and everything, in many regards, I feel like that work is like old school news. I felt like at, no one really took that seriously. <laughs> and oftentimes I feel like people still don't take it seriously, but at least now there's new players on the block, there's new people, there's new voices, which is great, but then my shit gets left behind. Again, I'm telling you what I feel. Telling you what I feel. I'm just being vulnerable here. Uh, whether it exists or not, I don't know. I think in some cases, I think there's always confirmation bias in, in, in some of these things, right? Where you you want to see something, right? And, and I get that this goes into the narratives that we tell ourselves um, daily, uh, you know, about our lives. Like, oh man, story of my life. You're like, what is the story of your life? And so I'm trying to kind of break through some of those things and work through them. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy, you know, and um, living a life that on one end looks, oh, my gosh, you got books, you got this, you got the degree, man, you got a house, you live in all this stuff, man, that's that's great. And the other side, I feel like, man, I like and it, it, I, we're like, what, what am I doing with my life? And so the question does come back. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to be my own uh, therapist. It's like, what do you really want? Right. What do you really want? What does that for you mean? And I think a part of it is is the 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 unfilling well of my 
of wanting validation. Okay? Uh, of wanting to be validated as a black man in the academy or, or, or for whatever field I'm in. This didn't just happen because I became a professor. This shit goes all the way back when I was involved in working in like direct ministry, uh, when I was a construction worker, even back on the streets under the underground economy, I still strive for that validation. Um, so it, it, it's something that is is ongoing. And I know there's, you know, the imposter syndrome. I get that. I know that's here. Um, and, you know, feeling like, oh, you know, and those those are my dreams right now. Right. It's like just being called out like, oh, you don't belong here. Like, look at this, man. You didn't even do the research right, man. You and you a fake like those are the nightmares. <laughs> like some people get nightmares, with you know, the boogity man and, and monsters and stuff like that. My nightmares are like just being told, like, you don't belong here. Um, you know, we're going to revoke your 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 Ph.D. Right. Um and being a pariah and that's and honestly that's the way i feel though in many situations like i feel like a major shift happened in 2018 uh you know with my talk at ccda uh that's of course here as well you can go and listen to that it's on the podcast i recorded although the recording was a little little something something but there there's better ones that are out there and so you can listen to that is what my point um but i don't blame that i knew exactly what i was doing and 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 how it was going to go down i don't blame that but i do believe it was me being able to just say like i don't know man i'm i'm just kind of done with the yin and the yaya i'm done with with trying to be the black voice that you, i i want to see results is i guess is what i'm saying um and I've been questioning, you know, like protests and, you know, sign petition people like call your senators like, man, I've been calling them, man. These motherfuckers don't listen. Uh, so I, those are the things I'm struggling with right now. Um, and I don't know. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're just like, damn, you just need to do one, two, three, you know. So uh, I don't know. I've been trying to do one, two, three for a long time. And, and that's even the question, too, is like, you know, is this stuff that I'm doing really helping or not? Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel it's real kind of, you know, rubber meets the road, if you will, to use an expression type of stuff that I'm dealing with. So here we are, you know, and, uh, and the end of season six and just some reflections, uh, of where I've been, you know, and, and even the listenership of this, you know, it's just like, I look sometimes and I'm like, Psh. I should just stop doing the damn podcast. Nobody's listening to that, right? That's the ongoing voice. Like, nobody's listening to that shit, man. Like, who even cares? Like, why waste your time? <laughs> Saying, go do something else. Um, so I struggle. I struggle, fam. I struggle, and uh, hopefully y'all can relate. This is all good fodder for the haters. If y'all haters still listening and stuff, man. Um, you know, I, I always know there's a few out there being like, ha, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> but haters, y'all already know what I think about y'all. But at any rate, I wanted to end on a good note. <laughs> so don't say I don't have, you know, I know I'm the black Eeyore, but you know, uh, I, I do have some, this, 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 I wanted to end on a good note and somebody's doing some amazing work. So I brought on, uh, Willie Dwayne Francois the third, uh, he's got a new book out and, uh, yeah, we are going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about just some of the stuff that he's doing. Uh, in regards to moving forward, we're bringing a little bit of hope uh, in how we engage life. Um, 
so yeah, this is this is some powerful stuff. And so I was uh, I was introduced to him uh, through the publisher, and uh, we set it up. And uh, you know, here's here's that recording. And I wanted to end the season on this kind of a a way of of thinking about what the future is. And I don't want you know, and this is not a oh we all have to have this hopeful. No, 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 no. You know, you y'all know me. I ain't I ain't that person. I ain't the one to you know blow sunshine. <laughs> Okay, I ain't the one to 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 try to, you know, tell you exactly what you want to hear. Um, but there is a sense here that I think, you know, he's got some stuff. In, and I do believe that, you know, the, 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 the answers and solutions to most problems that are out there have already been discovered, have already been have already been talked about. I've already been researched. They're out there. They're just waiting. But folks have refused to engage with them. Okay. <laughs> So that, you know, it's where we're at, right? It's where we're at. And the era that we're in right now seems to be getting worse and worse. It's, that being said, that's why I brought Brother Willie on. Uh, he's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Morehouse College, okay? Bachelor of Arts in History and Religion. Uh, he's doctor, actually, from uh, Canada School of Theology. He's a senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey, and president of the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. He serves as Assistant Professor of Liberation Theology at New York Theological Seminary and directs a master's program at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Good stuff right there, fam. He created the Public Love Organization and Training Plot. Uh, project has served in various organizations, including racial justice issues uh, and including, excuse me, the Atlanta chapter, city chapter of Black Lives Matter. The Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference and the NJ, New Jersey Department of State's MLK Juniors Commission. He's an active uh, speaker. He's been on Huff Post, The Hill, Christian Century, Religion Dispatches. I was very fortunate to get in touch with him uh, from Brazos Press. And I ain't going to front. I am really surprised Brazos put this book out. <laughs> I ain't even going to front. That's why I was like, okay, I got to talk with uh, Dr. Francois because. Uh, yeah, I'm like, wow. Uh, and now, you know, I'm not trying to show no disrespect, but, you know, Brazos is not known for really, you know, upholding black voices, BOC voices and stuff, especially something called silencing white noise. Right. Uh, so I was I was like, whoo, how'd you do it? Uh, so he's going to break this book down. Check it out again. Wanted to end on a a, a good note of somebody doing some amazing work. Um, Wayne and I had a great conversation. I think this is important. Six practices to overcoming uh, are in action. And, and um, you know, as it particularly as it pertains to particularly as it pertains to the situation we find ourselves in right now with, again, white racism, uh, racism in general, just the ignorance of people, you know, rising. And um, it's uh yeah, it's big. It's big, it's big. And uh, enjoy this interview and enjoy the book. Go go get the book. You know, Brazos is putting it out. <laughs> uh, hopefully they don't cancel it like IVP did mine. Uh, you know, in the next year. You know what I'm saying? Crazy shit, man. These Christian publishers, man, they shady AF. But that is for season seven. All right. We'll get into that in season seven, fam. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, and uh, yeah, I'll see you back in season seven. Check out this conversation. Enjoy, fam. Peace.
All right. Well, here we go. Folks, uh, you know, we're uh, back here talking about uh, race and racism. And uh, who is the book right here? Silencing White Noise. My guest today is Dr. Willie, Reverend Dr. Willie Dwayne Francois III. Sir, welcome to Profane Faith. And thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. When uh, when I got the notification that this book was out, um, I was like, wow, this is uh, this amazing on two different levels. Just again, Brazos Press, no disrespect to them, but goddamn, man, this is, this I'm like, man, they probably putting something like this out. Every time I see something from them, it's just some, some white dude. So this is, this was great. Um, but, uh, before we get into that, and I definitely want to get to the book because I think this is a great resource for folks. Um, I've had a chance to, to read it. I believe this is an advanced copy. At least that's what it was saying in the footnote. Yep. Yes, advanced yes, copy, back cover. Um, What's been happening from birth to now? What, who, how did Brother Willie become who Willie is right now, man? And you know, a doctor and all that good stuff, man. What, what's been happening? Sure. Now, again, thanks for having me uh, today. Uh, so I'm originally from Galveston, Texas. Mm. Uh, I grew up. I grew up there, and that's the birthplace of Juneteenth. Uh, and so, really? yeah, birthplace of Juneteenth. Okay. So, uh, when 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 the when the word got to Texas uh, that the nation had abolished slavery, it, it, that first word, uh, I guess we could say, happened in in Texas. Uh, obviously, we know two years after the emancipation happened, but but right. yeah. So I'm I'm from the birthplace of, of of Juneteenth. I grew up there with with my mom and my my younger sister. Uh, really tight knit family. Uh, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, had a outsized role. In, in my formation, particularly uh, what it meant to 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 do this Jesus journey, to, <laughs> to follow this to follow this Jesus movement. Uh, so you know, spent every weekend with with my grandparents, which meant I was in church uh, yeah. every every weekend all day uh, on on Sunday. Uh, grew up uh, and and ultimately uh, it was in that context in Galveston that I. I embraced uh, a, a vocation for ministry. Okay. Uh, started started preaching at age sixteen. Uh, started preaching at age sixteen, and from there, you know, I went went to college in Atlanta. Uh, did did uh, did graduate work uh, in, in Cambridge at, at Harvard, and have been in full time ministry now for a decade since I graduated wow. from seminary. I've been in full-time ministry uh, for a decade, been a senior pastor in the state of New Jersey uh, for, for six and a half years. And so, so that's, those are the broad strokes of what get me here, yeah. of what get me here. And uh, father of one son, okay. uh, excited about uh, him. Uh, he's, he's a two-year-old. Uh, so uh, yes. you, you, you can imagine uh, what yes. I'm experiencing now. Yes. Yeah. And I, I love the uh, the introduction or the dedication to the book. Uh, you, you, you know, you re referencing him, you know, peanut and whatnot. I, I have I've written several that touched definitely touched the heart and, and a nerve as uh, my daughter growing up. And uh, my first book, I was definitely uh, sending a shout out to her. So that was that was what's up, man. Um, I am a Texas native myself. As, uh, oh, wow. I was I was born in. I mean, I can't claim California as my home just because I was there most of my formative years. But I was born in a little small town called Menard, right in about the middle of the state, um, about 30 miles off the 10 freeway off Junction. Um, and I, it, I, I think I would have been better if I had been in a bigger city like Galveston or Houston, Dallas and stuff. But man, brother, I was the only black kid 
um, in literally a 40 mile radius. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, to say the least, it was a lot. How have you navigated being in a state like Texas that has, right? We just heard of the Uvalde shooting and, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of mess going on. The governor, you know, is is an interesting person to say the least, man. How have you navigated that? Least, right? <laughs> right. Just being a black man living in that environment with so much history in that state. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, Go governor Abbott is is criminal in so many ways <laughs> for so many things. A lot of those things along the lines of race and, and gender inequity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we could just run the gamut of, right. of how he represents so much of, of 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 what this book is 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 attempting to 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 topple and to to address. But man, growing up in Galveston, you know, what's interesting? Uh, I grew I grew up in Galveston, but I, I went to high school in Lamarck, Texas. Okay, which is uh, maybe about ten minutes from Galveston. Again, a we could call it a a suburb of Galveston, right? Okay. Uh, if, if we want to say Galveston is a big city, we, generally we talk about Galveston as a suburb of Houston. Uh, but so Lamarck is a is a suburb of Galveston, which is a suburb of Houston. And what's interesting is that my you know I think my peer circle was multiracial, uh, okay. but that was that was not really the norm. Uh, in our school, and and prime, I say that primarily because although Lamarck and Galveston are primarily white towns, these these are white majority towns. Lamarck High School was majority non-white school uh, in a majority white town, okay. which speaks to how our our schools, particularly our public schools, are actually more segregated than the municipalities in which they live because of the way white flight. Uh, you know, it's not simply white flight from towns, but the way whites are able to escape and have a have these escape hatches in our public school system. So, like my my circle was 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 multiracial. You know, we had Latinx folk in, in our circle. We had a couple of white sisters uh, in in our circle. Uh, still, still overwhelmingly non-white. But but uh, but to have you know white friends growing up was. You know, it, it 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 did help in my own formation of what it means to navigate navigate this experiment with democracy that is that is really anti anti black. Uh, but it also demonstrates for me how even the good white folk yeah. have to start interrogating their privilege, their power, and their own racism. And so, from a young age, even 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 then, you know, you have you know I have these white friends. Who, who, you know, we're we would probably identify now as on the woke side, okay. uh, on, on the progressive side. Yeah. But even thinking about, even thinking about experiences with them, man, microaggressions existed there. Um, you know, the obvious, some obvious bigotry around other black folk, right? Yeah. How I, you know, you're not like the other black folk. Uh, yeah, that, that was a part of my experience in ways I didn't know how to process then. But when I, you know, as I've been doing anti-racism work. Uh, you know, and throughout my throughout my adulthood, I'm like, damn, I, I I could have easily been traumatized by the kind of whiteness that I normalized as friendly, right. whiteness that I normalized as family growing up, but really has some dangerous implications uh, to if if I was processing and listening and being fully aware yeah. to what I was being told, what I was experiencing, what I was experiencing, man, yeah, I mean, it it, it could be perceived as 
types of, of racial trauma, maybe on the lower end, on the lower side of racial trauma, but racial trauma nonetheless. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's the big part of it. I mean, and I, uh, you know, having worked for organizations myself, like Young Life, you know, and, you know, a very white organization that has tried to do the quote unquote urban thing that has tried to, you know, reach out and you know what, there's, there's so much of, of, of the racism, right. That gets baked in just to everything that gets done. Um, let me ask this. And I, like I said, we get into the book, but I definitely want to ask what has been your thought process of decolonizing your own theology, decolonizing your own mind. You got a son, you a family man, Help! I mean, granted, he's two, but still, it's like you know. He's just soon enough, it's just like I, I. I remember when I could hold my daughter in one hand, her whole head fed in my head. Now this kid's about to turn sixteen and is asking to drive the car. I'm like, I don't know about all that. <laughs> um, so, how have you? What is the process that you've gone through to 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 get to where you're at um, right now? Does that make sense? No, no, no. It's it's really helpful. So I, I have to be clear. Uh, unabashed about this, M Morehouse College was mm. that that incubator for Man. me. Mm. That that start that where I started to exercise, uh, you know, the demonic whiteness that I had normalized, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right. You know, because I'm I'm, right. I'm really clear that the way whiteness works. Yeah, man, it, it inhabits bodies regardless of skin color and, and ancestry. And I did, man, I, I went to Morehouse conservative, you know, women can't preach, uh, <laughs> you know, anti-queer in a lot of my theological stance. Okay. And so, you know, it was Morehouse where I started to purge and I started to exercise, wow. you know, my own you know, male privilege, hetero privilege. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I started to put in perspective, yeah. you know, this kind of charmed life that that I, I had as a kid or what I perceived as a kid, you know, being embraced by white folk, uh, you know, and so many, I, I had to stare at myself and say, man, how long have I been the token and didn't know it, right? Right. Uh, and, 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 and so it was that point, right? Uh, being in that, that, that all black, male in majority black male uh all male environment was my opportunity to really take a vacation to take a holiday from white america in ways that i didn't know mm -hmm. i needed uh and it was you know it was at morehouse where i was reintroduced to a radical dr king and not the dr king on the steps of lincoln memorial that i always that i said i was you know as a boy preacher from a small town in texas right, right. i had to be i had to be introduced to a king that was doing the work of decolonizing christianity to an extent now obviously king could have gone much farther in 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 uprooting whiteness from from christianity uh but 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 you know, that was a gateway for me to realize that so much of what i ex embrace as christianity had nothing to do with Jesus, the mm. Palestinian carpenter, but also had nothing to do with with the kind of freedom fighting that I under that that I embraced Dr. King to be about and 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 to engage. So it's that Morehouse that that mm. I started to decolonize uh, my theology and I start to decenter. Uh, hopefully, what I call I start to crucify white Christ. Yes. And left him in the tomb, right? That that's the Christ I don't resurrect. <laughs> is that, that we leave that one in the tomb? But but it was there, like reading James Cone, 
uh, Father mm. of Black Liberation Theology, reading Dolores Williams, uh, reading Jacqueline Grant, who was, you know, just one campus away at the Inter Interdenominational Theological Center, mm -hmm. uh, like immersing myself in Black and other liberationist thought was, and, and it, was, it, it, it was a type of rebirth for me. Wow. It, it was a kind of uh, opportunity where, yo, I was hearing the universe say, you must be born again if this Jesus movement is going to have any power for black folk in the American Republic. See, this is powerful, man. Cause I think y'all, if I had to do it over again, I would definitely go to an HBCU. I, uh, I think about just the importance of that. I've had the, the opportunity and privilege to, to speak at several of them. And, um, it's just a trip to walk through places, the school of nursing, and you see black people as nurses, black people as doctors, black people. I mean, that was just that that struck me just walking through hallways and seeing representation of who yeah. you are, because so often, right, we it's all we see is whiteness. And I'm glad right at the beginning of the book, I really love this was actually in the introduction, page 13. Uh, it says a more insidious white noise distracts us into perpetual sleep. And I love the the white noise analogy that you use um cuz both my partner and I and 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 my daughter we, all of us use white noise in the back to kind of fall asleep and it helps we you know we have dogs so it helps them so they're not barking all night and everything but it does it lulls you to sleep but you come in and you says i categorize the racist idea of speech and silence and misinterpretation that protect and perpetuate whiteness as a white noise when I discuss whiteness in this book, I am not referring to skin color. And I think this is powerful because I don't think enough people realize this stuff, but rather to the consciousness or unconsciousness deferred to the unfounded notions of white superiority. And for me, that's like, man, these constructs that are out there that press up and in and against you. It doesn't have to be the Klan member. It doesn't have to be the radical Trump supporter. It doesn't have to be... You know, the the police officer is just sure. a commercial. It's a, sure. a, a magazine uh, photo. It can be a Disney cartoon um, that reinforces some of these things. Where in, theologically speaking, man, how have you seen some of these white, some of this white noise show up? in different spaces. I mean, shoot, you got a, you got a doctorate. So you, you know, you've had to, you've had to navigate some of these spaces and, and, sure. and whatnot. Now, granted again, you went to Morehouse, that's, which is amazing. Um, but what do you got your doctorate from? Let's see, Candler. Yeah, yeah. Emory, yeah. Emory University. Yeah. Okay, Emory. All right. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an excellent place, man. So yeah, how have you seen some of those things show up? You know, theologically, and you know, you don't even have to stick and stick in that. I mean, you can just talk, you know, systemically. Yeah. So so one, I want to underscore just how important what you said is 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 like that is a part of the the American delusion that that keeps white this alive is that we only think about white supremacy or white violence when you know somebody's carrying a tiki torch in charlottesville virginia talking about down with the jews or or you know somebody is in south carolina gunning down you know worshipers as as they pray like the, the or what, what happens in Buffalo, right? What right. happened in Buffalo or, or Uvalde, right? Yeah. We, we, we think of those as, right, that's America's racism without realizing, man, that we're all really just soaked in these narratives, this discourse of, of anti-blackness, of, of anti-non-whiteness, like it's, it's, it's in our laws, right? It, you know, there's a part in the book where I talk about, you know, how the constitution never really 
outpaces or outgrows uh, even amendment upon amendment. We, we're just putting amendments on top of of documents that are shrouded in in, in white supremacy, rooted in 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 in, in uh, whiteness. So to be able to name that, you know, the way the news depicts black people is a type of white noise, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that that when you can watch the news, particularly somebody place like New York City, yeah. and they spend uh, 45 minutes of the hour of news engaging crime and all of the perpetrators <laughs> and all the victims too are black and brown, right? And, and, you know, that's another part we don't often talk about. It's like all the victims that we're talking about are usually black yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is so interesting how white people are so scared of, of, of black folk uh, when, when the numbers are white people are more likely to harm white people than, than black people are. And to be clear, white people are also more likely to harm most people, right? Uh, to, 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 to be honest. But, you know, th that, that, you know, so, so white supremacy whiteness racism shows up in covert forms uh, it, it it's actually in our grammar uh in ways that, that mm. i don't think that, that we fully perpetuate but how i've seen it you know, going into black churches that have stained glass windows with white jesus white john the baptist and a white bearded old person that's supposed to stand in for god that's white noise, right? Uh, to go into white churches and see those very same uh, icons. Uh, and we know Jesus is a Palestinian Jew, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Afro-Asiatic uh, at the core. That's 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 white noise. Uh, the fact, you know, there's a part in the book where I talk about, it's interesting how particularly our white evangelical brothers and sisters want to peddle us a raceless gospel while it holds on to a white Jesus, right? That's that kind of that's white noise there is that, no, that there is no color in the gospel. The gospel is colorblind, which right. I talked about in the right. chapter. But your colorblind gospel needs a white Jesus, right? These are ways that white noise show up uh, theologically, all right, yeah. and and we could, and we could talk about the way the curriculum looks in 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 Bible school, you know, these these Bible colleges, and also these accredited theological seminaries, right? All of them are perpetuating kind of Western centric understanding of theology that is sin heavy, uh, it's speculative, and has nothing to do with the lived experience. Like, so theologically, that's how I see it. That's how I see it uh, showing up. But you know, I. I I too have been a perpetuator and sometimes yeah. still yeah, perpetuating yeah. white noise. Uh, one of my one of my childhood sermons uh, it was post a a a shooting in one of the housing developments in Galveston, right? Galveston segregated city. Uh, most of the black folk are concentrated on one part of town. All of the housing, the public housing accommodations, are in one section of town. Uh, I think. You know, most of those have been demolished now because of all the storms that have just mm. ripped the city and caused migration out of the out of the island, primarily by black folk having to leave the island. But I remember there was a shooting. I'm 17 years old, uh, and and I think I know something about black on black crime, right? A, a concept that that I no longer believe is true uh, because most crime, as I was saying, is interracial, and the idea of black on black crime does nothing more than perpetuate. Uh, how we pathologize and demonize black folk, right? Because we don't talk about Asian on Asian crime. We don't talk about uh, white on white crime. You know, we, we, we don't talk about Mexican on Mexican crime or El Salvadorian on El Salvadorian crime. We talk about black on black crime, right? And, and that's and that a, a, a larger frame that this country uses, particularly 
the folk that we say are smart in this country, uh, the, the the educated class, the expert class, they right. use the concept of black on black crime as a further way of painting all black folk in a particular light. But yes. here I am, 17 years old, and I'm preaching, and I start talking about a, a rash of, of gun violence uh, episodes that happen in that in that uh, in that housing division that that housing development uh that is for poor folk for black folk and and i'm talking about it as if those black folk are different from us right uh they need to pull up their pants like pulling up their pants has something to do with guns right right and, and i am 17 years old regurgitating wow the white noise i had consumed from the media from school from elders in the church. And what's so interesting about it is I never saw that as a problematic moment because as I'm railing against the gun violence and black on black crime, the, the church is excited. They're, they're Yes, you're right. Those black folk. In a moment, I use the gospel as a way of creating us versus them Mm. of the black life and then using the same narratives that white folk use against black folk on black folk right at 17 i was doing this wow. as a preacher right i turned the good news into an opportunity to bash poor black folk right uh so so yeah man it, it shows up Woo. okay you man brother you you've covered a lot of good ground on this one man i mean i think the you just said it, the sagging pants. I know I was, you know, uh, uh, a victim, if you will, of that ideology as well, right? It's like, well, if they just picked up their pants, if they talked a certain way, unbraid your hair when you go to a, uh, you know, all that stuff, right? It's like, there's a sense that, you know, we see the world through that lens, that white noise. Sure. Um, well, let me ask this. And, this and, is, and to be honest, I just have to say this. Uh, going, yeah. You know, just although he no longer sounds like this, Don Lemon used to say this stuff every night. And now we have this woke Don Lemon who's <laughs> who's unrecognizable right. to the person I knew, like right after Trayvon was killed. Yes. And all, that. all of us, like yes. all of us. And I use him as an example because I think he represents one of the public facing ways. Yeah. And I, I hope it's genuine that we can all divest from yeah. these narratives and stories that are keeping us divided, keeping us polarized, uh, tarnishing our, our democracy and, and, the, and the promise of this democracy. But yeah, all, all of these things can be unlearned because they were learned. Woo. That's a great point about Don Lemon. You're absolutely right. Because I remember, I'm, I ain't going to front. I, I couldn't stand like listening to a lot of the crap that was coming out of it. And then it was like 2016 happened, and this Negro just went a completely 360. <laughs> he got baptized, man. That's it, man. That's it. Um, well, how do you, I mean, because this, again, in real time, I think about a book like this, Florida passed a law that it's unlawful to make a white person feel guilty or to make them feel bad about, you know, their race. Uh, you're seeing all kind of stuff pop up around the country, anti-critical race theory, which for, I would say 98% of the people saying that haven't the slightest clue of what critical race theory is. It's like in my classroom, I always tell students, like, if you're going to stand up against critical race theory, I want to know the five theorists that you've been reading and that you've been engaging with. And I want you to have a step-by-step -step argument against that. And then I'll have a conversation. But this whole thing of, oh, you're teaching racial hatred in the schools. Yeah. I ain't going to stand for that in the classroom. How does a book like this 
begin to because I think about, you know, somebody like Franklin Graham, who's always saying something dumb uh, online or, or in public, um, would look at this in particularly with people who saying, oh, man, that's just the woke. That's the they're uh, what did they call Lisa Sharon Harper the other day? And it was a host of other people, too. Um like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, false prophets and stuff. They'd be like, man, this is like, this isn't the real Christianity. I mean, you just said it, right? It's a colorblind Christianity. What are, how have you navigated some of those conversations uh, publicly, non-publicly, theologically, especially, yeah. like I said, especially with who people are saying, and I forget what laws Texas has passed. We still have a a, a Democrat governor in Illinois, but there's there's measures on there to begin to put, to put him to place. We got a gubernatorial election this year. If he gets ousted, whoever's coming in is already standing on an anti-CRT, uh, you know, platform and saying like, you know, we're going to get rid of all this stuff throughout colleges and not just private schools, publicly funded schools as well. But thoughts on all that, man. I, I, so, I know I said a lot. So like this anti-critical race theory campaign, I mean, because in some places it's it's strategically organized. I mean, you have a group of white moms in, in Virginia, based in Virginia, I believe, who for all intents and purposes, purposes did a good job of flipping or impacting that election, uh, the last the last gubernatorial cycle, where they received the, you know, where where, where the governor is now a, a a Republican. There's a lot of of parental energy, particularly white mom energy, around this concept. And most of them are Christians. They call themselves Christians, right? Yeah. Uh, around making sure that that critical race theory is banned. And what they're really saying is, let's not teach American history. Let's not talk about, let's not teach the fullness of American history. Let's, let's not talk about how laws were constructed. Right. I, I think that's what they, I think that's what they want to say uh, to, to some extent, but, but the reality is, and, and you know, I know, I know your audience knows this. I mean, critical race theory is not taught in, in K-12 education. It's, 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 it's a red herring that so many folks are using to really diminish a national conversation uh, that needs to happen that has not right now. We right now we should be in the middle of of serious reparative action, yeah. but we haven't even had conversations, so we can't even get to serious reparative action because we haven't even had certain certain conversations. It's been my experience though that it's really hard to push somebody on to see their own racism when they've relegated racism to. A, a a a a past a, a past moment in America's history, right? Where they want to say, "Oh no, we're beyond that." In some cases, and they'll say things like, "We gave you a black president." Uh, I mean, there's a black woman in the White House now. What do you mean, racism? Racism was shattered uh, with with these two with with these two types of, of 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 elections, right? And and I found that I think the some of the greatest hope for change that that this book I hope will bring into the world is actually those that Dr. King criticized, mm. those white moderates and liberals who get to hide behind their whiteness, their, their latte liberalism without ever having to confront real lives of black and brown folk of, of, of Asian folk, of, 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 of people who are, who are immigrants to, to this country. Yeah. You know, my governor in New Jersey, he is, you know, former member of the NAACP national board. Uh, you know, 
won with 96% of the black vote, but all of his anti-racism is really virtue signaling uh, and other types of demagoguery. It does not lead, it does not transcend the mouth. It does not transcend a few platitudes here and there. And I, I, you know, I think if we could get moderate and liberal white folk to actually have racist actions, and not just racial race, not just uh, and so anti-racist action, mm-hmm. and not just you know anti-racist epithets and and slogans. Yeah, I think that actually pushes the country farther than 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 we've been able to go so far because most of what we get from the so-called woke left, who's white, is really just more empathy more feelings, but no real action, no real sacrifice. And I think that, you know, that's why it's a book about practices grounded in theory. Of course, Uh, there's some theology that undergirds it. Uh, There's some philosophy that, 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 that comes off the page, but really it was an opportunity to say, now, what are some practices? What, what are some, some cult, what are some habits? Uh, What are some, some spheres of practices? That, that can be engaged in one's daily life mm-hmm. that can start to help to diminish, to, to, to mute uh, the white noise that's within us and the white noise around us. And so, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know that this book is going to penetrate the heart of a Southern Baptist deacon from Alabama. I don't know that, right? Uh, I, I, you know, I have hope that all human beings have the capacity to change, transform, and 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 evolve, right? I have that yeah. hope. Yeah. Uh, but there's still so much work that needs to be done in the middle. So much work that needs to be done on 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 the white left that has not been done. Uh, that hopefully these these practices that that I call reparative intercession will give them opportunities to stare in the moral mirror. And realize where those shortcomings are, but also where the possibilities live uh, for them to to die to their own whiteness and come alive to their humanity. Mm. That's deep, man. I and and it it reminds me of this again as I'm thinking about the book here, chapter two. At the beginning of it, you say, you know, it's not my fault. I've heard this this argument so many times. I hear from white students a lot, um, and and I'd I'd be curious too. I don't have the research behind this, but I've been noticing this a lot over the last few years. There are more black students saying this as well. And I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on that as well. But it's not my fault. Slavery was long was long ago, so get over it. Like, like we need to just move on from this. Um, Candace Owens says this a lot, right? Like we as black folk need to get get on get on you know, with this and, you know, we don't, you know, the, that the liberals and Democrats have us pegged and they don't, you know, they don't have our best interest uh, in mind. Um, And then I love the, 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 the title, the subtitle of the, of the, of the chapter on page 60, innocence that blinds and binds. Can you talk a little bit about just that? You talk about momentum to encounter, like how does that break down again in real time since I, which I feel like we're at such a heightened level of racism now it's like the yeah. racists are just out now they're out the closet yeah. they ain't got no shame whatsoever it and it's and it's blatant yeah right 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 i mean it's blatant and and and, and still that's only one type of racism we're having to fight right yeah that, that doesn't even account for how 
I did, you know, how I, you know, most black people vote Democratic. That's, that's real. Most black people that vote vote Democratic. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we got to be we have to be honest about how our friends in the Democratic Party who are white are also perpetuating. Absolutely. Uh, so much of what's keeping us trapped and bound structurally. Right. Uh, so, so, I mean, but, but this is a moment where it, it is open season for racism, man. And and no, it's not Trump's fault. Trump's obviously a symptom of it, but but Trump as a national or international symptom of you know global whiteness has emboldened some folk with not as much power to be racist as well. So no, it's not Trump's fault, but he does offer a lot of permission to folk who might otherwise have not been as free uh, to, 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 to do such. But, you know, in this, I, I've heard, Many black folks say, man, that was so long ago, man, lynching, that that's over, uh, man, Jim Crow, that's over. And like, like I always want to simply, you know, as a pastor, you know, yeah. I, you know, I try to take off my activist hat sometimes. And as a pastor, I want to sympathize with, with where that comes from. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more and more realizing how the sedation of assimilation has really seized so many middle-class black folk, right? Mm. That, that we, with the, the fact that so many of us have been able to assimilate uh, to some levels of, of, of security economically, and sometimes even physically, right? That, that we, you know, some of us can live in the suburbs alongside other white folk, right? So many of us do. Uh, so many of us did go to Ivy Leagues or PWIs with, with white folk and did better than they did, right? And, and that has the capacity to convince us uh, that America has changed. Uh, and and, and, and then I, I talk about that as, as a kind of sedation of assimilation. We've, we've become so American uh, that 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 we're not able to see America for what she still is, right? We we've become so American that we've been blinded by this type of national mythic innocence uh, around what's happening to Black folk. To be clear, slavery in its chattel form might have been abolished, but what we find is that slavery has been able to. Not, let me say it this way: We've been able to see how social control of black bodies has found new iterations every single generation. Mm. And it's hard to say, no, I can't accept that slavery was so long ago, get over it, when the way wealth is structured in this country today is because of what happened on those plantations and, and what happened in antebellum America, right? Uh, the way that our, our, our schools look today Right. That, that I live in New Jersey. We are the sixth most segregated in terms of public schools. Wow. The only southern state that beats New Jersey in segregated schools is my home state of Texas, our home state of Texas. Right. Wow. New Jersey, New York City, California, Illinois are all more segregated than the former Confederacy and the former Jim Crow South. Uh, I think I think. Uh, uh, new, in terms of segregation in schools, New York is number one, California is number two, Illinois is number three, Maryland is number four, Texas is number five, we're number six in terms of race. Okay. Uh, black and brown kids. Like, 
that is a carryover for how Brown v. Board never actually materialized on the ground. It's a great legal precedent that we hope a Supreme Court won't overturn, but we don't know that uh, considering what, what makes up the court today. Uh, but but again, the way our schools look and function are a, are a carryover of what we thought we left in the past, right? We have to be able to, so, and when I talk about this momentum to encounter, I'm talking about our capacity to handle ugly history, mm-hmm. our capacity to be honest about what this nation has and has not done, but also to understand that every present has a history. We have to be able to tell the history of the present. We have to be able to tell, to track the story on how mass incarceration grew out of chattel slavery. We have to be able to tell the story about how today's uh, racial wealth gap and gender wealth gap is also layered and informed by what did not happen post-slavery in terms of repair and in terms of equity. What we're experiencing today has a history. So the past is never really the past because we're still living in a present that is so shaped by what was what was done to our ancestors, but is also shaped uh, by the ongoing racism that happens today. Now, it's, nobody is saying that slavery is responsible for everything that's happening today. Sure, yeah. there are new form, I mean, there are new forms of, of racial exclusion, racial extraction, racial exploitation that are now just compounded with this legacy, this career of racism that we've not fully addressed. So the momentum to encounter is our opportunity to take seriously that every present moment has a history, that we all have feelings about this history. And most of these feelings that when we it hurts on both sides, uh, I know white folk who are in, not just embarrassed by their slaveholding ancestors, but are grieved by their slaveholding ancestors. And they have end up doing all this insignificant work trying to uh, appease a past instead of them actually taking seriously how they are currently contributing to what our racial nightmare is. Every action in this in this world, it, it it's either complicit with racism or it is contesting racism. No neutral ground, right? And 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 to only pay attention to slavery, but not to pay attention to how we are actively feeding a system of anti-blackness is to be complicit. So it's the work of naming yes the, the past still has a lingering effect, but there's some new things we're doing right now that also need to be addressed. Well, I, you know, and I think, man, I think what's interesting is, you know, you talk about this here in the chapter on post risk pages, 134, 135, and you give a bullet point of some of the things that I feel like don't really ever get addressed in a, you know, in a, in, in a proper way. You talk about a system, uh, a system of legacy college admiss- admissions, which, I mean, need we say anymore? I mean, books can be written on that. Um, the the uh, the pretensions of colorblindness, right? Like, you know, I don't see color. I don't. Mm-hmm. I just see you as who you are, Dan. The pretend. Uh, the oh, the, the pension uh, to advance opportunities only for other white people. Yeah. Uh, I think about 
you know, colleges and how incestual they are. I think about, yeah. you know, they, they will hire their own in a, in a second, right? But then tell me, or are you, oh, no, 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 you know, that we, you, you got to go back and you got to go do this. You got to need some other uh, way. I think another one is, you know, safe distance from the violence that threatens poor and black, brown lives. The delusion that our religious convictions do not harm others. That was a big one. The myth that all American heroes are white. Whoo, that one right there, man. That one, I was like, because that... That for me is right. You think about science innovators or math innovators and right. You yeah. begin to think you don't see, but once you start to study, you see just the fingerprint of how many black folks have contributed and how much of their stuff has been stolen. You think about stoplights, you think about, you sure. know, how we think about Wi-Fi. you think about just electronics, but the face of that, right. Is somebody like an Elon Musk. Sure. Um, uh, convictions that crime is black, uh, a sense of entitlement to jobs and capital development opportunities. Uh, and then here on page 136, you talk about it and, and the unquestioned freedom to live in segregated communities of safety, influence and F affluence. Um, man, how then do we begin to look at you talking? You go on here. Another look at Jesus uh, here on, on 136 pages, page, page 136 and on. What are some of those theological boundaries, man? Like, how do we begin to of all the things I think about? 30 years ago, man, I was I was in the L.A. uprisings, man. And I was like, man, it's, it's I feel like they was just last week. And to look and to think, man, April 29th, which is my mom's birthday, um, you know, just passed. And I was like, wow, 30 years, three decades. And I thought we was doing something like Crips and Bloods United. People were coming together, rebuild L.A. A few hundred billion dollars poured into that. And people were like, oh, man, we're going to rebuild the community and there was almost a year of nonviolence in terms of drive-bys and shootings and 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 school murders. I mean, cats was coming to guys like man. And then everything just fell apart. Rebuild LA closed. We didn't get the jobs we was promised. Wow. Mayors and and, and city officials basically started putting out um uh what do they call those things? Restraint orders against mm. us that so we couldn't come near sure. them. And sure enough, cats do what they do. Here we are. So, and I feel like, man, 30 years later, we're almost in a worse spot than we were in 92. What's the theology around some of this, brother? What keeps you going and what keeps you, you know, engaged with this? Yeah. So, I mean, the great question and 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 great, great, great tracking over some of what, so much of what we lost, right? Uh, you know, I always think about uh, Malcolm X and his, and his the, the way he, uh, sort of gave this metaphor around progress, right? Yeah. Uh, you get stabbed in the back with a nine-inch knife and you pull it out six inches. Is that progress, right? And and that, and that's real, right? Because there are ways that we have glorified progress that has not led towards healing or repair in 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 any given way. But I'm also I'm also struck by what Ibram Kendi talks about as racial progress, but also racist progress, right? That, that, that racism has gained some serious footholds uh, in, in, in these last generations. Uh, you know, we've only been a multiracial democracy for about two generations, right? And in terms yeah. of where black folk can really, buy, like, there's not a lot of progress that has really happened. If you're really going to be honest about what this country has done, but we, but we romanticize, right? But, but you, I, I just, this another look at Jesus, right? The theology behind is that we actually have to save Jesus from the American church, 
right? And maybe even the Western church, right? So much of what we've done to Jesus is make him more capitalist, make him more white, make him everything but that Palestinian itinerant carpenter who had a gift of empowering those who were, you know, on the margins of, of, of that, of that first century empire, right? Uh, that, 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 to put Jesus in context is to say that this Jesus is one who lived on the underside of empire and the underside of religious power as well. Mm. Right? Because Jesus is, is, you know, Jesus as a Jew, and, and I think we have to always reclaim and reaffirm the Hebrew identity of Jesus. But even Jesus as a Jew is on the underside of a small group of, of religious elites who are running the temple, who, who are running the temple down, right? And so there has to be this reclamation of Jesus. Like, yes, Jesus may be the savior of your soul, but now is the time for us to save Jesus from the stuff that we've allowed the American and Western church to do to Jesus. At some point, we have to be the saviors of Jesus so that we can reclaim, reassert this Hebrew identity of, of Jesus that makes him radical, mm -hmm. that makes him, him revolutionary. It is no mistake that Jesus' first sermon is drawn from uh an ancestral text drawn from the prophet Isaiah, talking about the spirit of the Lord being upon him to speak, right, the good news to the poor, right? The poor there, as I work out in that chapter, is really, that's a that's a, a an actual demographic of his time. These are the people, the poor, are the descendants of the ones who were left behind when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians deported and extracted uh, certain folk, certain Hebrews out of the Southern kingdom, out of Judah. And so Jesus is a descendant of people, not who went to work for the empire in Babylon and then came back. No, Jesus is a descendant of folk who were left to live in the ruins with burnt fields, raised buildings, no temple. Like Jesus is a product of folk who were left behind and Jesus has a ministry for folk who are left behind. Uh, what 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 the ancient culture calls the Amhat Harats, right? Th these are the people of the land, the poor folk, folk that uh, Oprah Hendricks would say, these are the people we would call the N-word. Today, Come on. Come on. If, if we were there, right? Jesus is a descendant of the ancient inwards, right? Jesus is, is a descendant of folk who were left behind, people who were left for dead by a foreign government and by a predatory religious uh, uh, establishment uh, at, at the time. Reclaiming that Jesus is a part of the fight that must be, that must be, that must be done. At some point, we have to... We have to, uh, you know, there's a, this New Testament idea of kenosis. Paul talks about uh, Jesus thought in that robbery, that he emptied himself, right? There has to be a kind of white kenosis of the Amer of the Jesus that we worship here and that Jesus that we worship in America, because we don't really follow Jesus here. We just worship Jesus here, right? Uh, like, what does it mean for us to empty Jesus of all of those assumptions of whiteness, particularly those predatory assumptions of whiteness, and then to actually follow 
what Jesus actually said about, uh, talk about this, uh, I, I call this abolitionist spirituality. Jesus invites us into an abolitionist spirituality, a, a, a political spirituality, because although I know we talk about the separation of church and state, we misrepresent what the separation of church and state means. But I, I contend that the political without the spiritual becomes predatory and loveless, mm. and the spiritual without the political is passive and unproductive. But Jesus invites us into a what I'm calling abolitionist spirituality, where we choose the unprotected, we choose to stand with the unprotected, the most violated, every day is that we have a sacred intolerance against iniquity, right? Uh, and, and we don't just think about sin as individual sins, but we name sins of systems, slavery, a sin, uh, a, a, a Congress that refuses to pass anti-lynching laws until this year, right? Sinful, right? right. The fact that an 18 year old can buy high capacity weapons, yeah. And not alcohol is 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 flooring, and it's a sin in this country. The fact that our schools are allowed to have certain levels of lead in the water, and we call that legal, even though it's unhealthy, and that's happening all over the country, not just Flint. Right. That's sin. Right. We have to be able to talk about sin. The fact that a police officer can gun someone down and go home with badge bullet and not face any charges or like this era of non-indictment that we were living in for so long, uh, you know, that is sin, right? So this abolitionist spirituality has to be able to name institutional sins. Uh, it, we have to say that, that, that we are actively disrupting structures and systems as acts of faith, mm. right? It's, okay. it's the same way my praying gets me closer to God as we believe. Showing up at a protest gets me closer to God. Uh, uh, voting against racist, homophobic, uh, uh, anti-women, uh, hyper-patriarchal politicians, voting against them gets me closer to God. How do we begin to see the work of justice as sacramental work? It is sacred and it draws us closer to God. I think that's also what Jesus is after. Uh, and, and then we have we, we, we engage in re reparative and reconstruct reconstructive action as often as we can. Is that we don't just settle for churches that feed the poor or feed the hungry, but we actually need churches that are trying to figure out why hunger exists in the first place, right? That we don't just have churches that create opportunities for the police and the community to have conversations, but no, we have churches that are actively advocating for civil review boards, uh, civil review commissions that allow the community to have oversight over what local police do. It's, it's that we, we can't just settle for charity. We have to be committed to the work of justice. And I think looking at Jesus in his Hebrewness as one who is a descendant of the left behind, we get closer to seeing the work of justice as 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 God given work, as spiritual work. Uh, I, I say justice is where the political and the spiritual rendezvous that you cannot talk about justice devoid of its spiritual implications. And there is no justice if it does not have political implications. Mm. Ooh. All right. All right. If you're just joining us, folks, Silencing White Noise is the book. Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race, Dr. Willie Dwayne Francois III. 
been talking with him about a lot of different things. Um, I appreciate here in chapter four, 110 and 111, there's an amazing table that you live, uh, probably one of the clearer ones that I've seen um, that really lays out examples of racial microaggressions. Well, I had yeah. to, I had to take a step back on this one because this one, I ain't gonna front, was triggering, man. It's like, you know, uh, microaggression, where are you from? No, like really, where are you really from? And <laughs> I can't, and I know my, my Pacific Asian and Islanders get that a lot more than yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, but Ooh, that's triggering, man. Microaggression. You are so articulate. Man, I get that, bro, all the time, especially I'm as an you. academic. I'm with you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, and we just talked about this. One. When I look at you, I don't see color. Um, again, these these are ways, and then you go on to break it down. You have the theme, the microaggression, the message, what's in, uh, and then the responses. And I appreciate this. Because I think so often I, I get asked a lot, especially for some of my white listeners on this show, what can I do as a white person? What can I do in the face of what seems like unfathomable odds to change anything? Yeah. Let me ask you this question, man. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Two, so it's two parts. One, what gives you hope in, 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 in this? And two, why Christianity with all the colonization? Why I ask, and I ask this a lot of my black guests sure. who claim Christianity. I've, and, and, and again, this isn't a debate. I am genuinely asking why Christianity for you as a black person. Um, I think about my five percenters who say, Oh man, it's the white man's religion. I think about my, you know, my, my nation of Islam fam, you know, who are just like, man, y'all got to get away from that. You know, white Jesus. Why Christianity and what gives you what gives you hope in this this day and age? Yeah. So uh, in, 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 in the conclusion of the book, I recount a James Baldwin moment. Um, and it, it's a moment that I, I did not know until I read um, until I, I, I was reading uh, Eddie Glaw's latest book on, on him. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big Baldwin fan. Oh, yeah. Me too. And, they, you know, Baldwin is asked by this interviewer, uh, well, what about hope? And Baldwin pauses and says, well, hope must be invented every day. Mm. And, you know, what gives me hope? I, I, I mean, I, the meaning and the possibilities of what it means to be human is what gives me hope, right? Mm. I don't think Jesus did not come to teach us how to be spiritual. I think Jesus, a part of Jesus, a big part of Jesus' life was showing us what it means to be human. What are the possibilities of what it means to be human? Human as healers, human as teachers, uh, human as those who care for those who are unprotected, right? The, 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 the brilliance of what it means to, 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 to be human, I think Jesus shows us. That gives me hope, right? And, and every day, Every day that I try to do something anti-racist, anti-patriarchal, anti-homophobic is, is, is me setting up a new laboratory for hope, right? Hope must be invented every day. I still believe in people, right? And, and you know, after Uvalde, I still believe in the, in the inherent good of humanity. Uh, after what happened in Buffalo, I still believe in the inherent good of, of humanity. I believe that human beings have the capacity to change. And so what gives me hope is that we learned racism, 
by everything around us. And therefore, we have to now create the conditions where we can have mass unlearning of, 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 of racism and, and racist practices, which will lead to anti-racist policy, anti-racist politics, anti-racist uh, institutions. So, so, so that, that, that's what gives me, gives me hope. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a everyday kind of, uh, it's an everyday uh, posture that I enter into the world looking for the signs that things can change. Uh, why Christianity? For, for me, it's Christianity because of those women and men who carved out revolutionary space in the antebellum South in the brush harbors. They were fed a Christianity that was exploitative, uh, that was married to white supremacy and to capitalism, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Christianity became the greatest uh, harbinger and protector, acolyte of, of racial capitalism, right? Uh, of, of, of this kind of race-based uh, classism that exists in, in, in this country. But for some, some sort of way, those beaten, wounded, uh, rejected, exploited minds, bodies, lives, sacrificed the little bit of time that they could have been sleeping went into the woods and preached messages like you find in Beloved. Love your unnoosed neck. Love your hands because nobody else will love them. And it's like, love your hands in spite of the cotton that they pick, right? Mm. Love your hands in spite of what massa requires you to do with those hands. Love your feet in spite of where they're not able to go. The conversion of Christianity in the brush harbor is what shows me the pos the liberative abolitionist possibilities of Christianity. And so it is it is Christianity for me because the stuff Jesus says is good. I can frame it and see it in its own revolutionary context, but also it did something for people who were holding on to threads of, 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 of sanity and threads of security in the middle of a racial nightmare, a national nightmare that says there's some potential in Christianity for me. Now, as somebody who's committed to interfaith, I believe all faith traditions offer us pathways to God. Uh, and, and there's some traditions that are not faith traditions, ethical traditions, uh, cultural traditions that also offer us pathways uh, to God. So I think all of the world's religions and, and wisdom traditions can get us to God. But I choose Christianity uh, because it was a pathway that gave a lifeline to folk who should not have survived mm -hmm. the, the ma'afa, should not have survived the auction block, should not have survived the whipping post should not have survived the lynching tree, uh, but they did. Mm, that's powerful. That's powerful, brother. I and I appreciate that, and I and I, I love that Baldwin quote because it, it 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 does have to be reinvented. And I think it's um it's one of those things, right? That I think uh hope that is really a commodity. You know, it's like I you know you hear the phrase "keep hope alive." Yeah. Um. Yeah. But to really think through that, right? Like, what does it mean to keep hope alive? What does it mean to be 
uh, you know, hopeful. And you're absolutely right. I mean, to survive 400 years, I mean, I can't imagine. It's it's unfathomable in my day and age with all these electronics and all the, the, all the amenities. I got a fan blowing on me right now, you know, to be thinking about what our ancestors had to go through you know, just to, for us, for you and me to be city, seated right here, to be having this yeah. conversation, yeah. highly educated with the ability uh, to vote. I think about that. That's the kind of stuff, right, that 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 weighs heavy on my mind. Sure. Um, I and I appreciate your response to, to Christianity. because and, and I ask that primarily because there's so much of evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, that's becoming undone and for me i'm just like look let it burn to the ground we need to start all over and from the ashes right. something go or come out um but uh you know there is that sense of like oh man you know what does faith look like in in, in 2022 um at the conclusion here you talk about uh, uh this is on page 190 and i and i will also say too for those listening um, I would say also look at, I'm an academic. I always look at the notes sections. And so I love your footnotes or your end notes, I guess, in this case, um, of all the, the references and the, uh, the material that you drew from, I want to just highlight that. I don't think oftentimes we, we spend time talking about that, but I would just say, if you got this book in your hand right now, or if you got it on your reader, Please spend some time looking at this brother's notes, um, because there is a lot of grounding in uh, that I think that I find very formative. Um, and it's done in such a way that it's not like heavy, like, oh, this is this, this, but it's it's done in such a way that it's solid, but it's also approachable, uh, mm -hmm. which I think oftentimes academia isn't approachable. It's, it's just like it's overwhelming. It's like, oh, man, like, this is crazy. But you talk about, you know, in Western culture, we sideline babbling babies to the edges of cognitive awareness and linguistic recognition for us babies lack clear and verbal uh, community communicative facility they can't yeah. talk we say according to the people of west africa the dominant population of the court uh i can never say that right the court of all babies yeah okay arrive uh in this world from the eternal uh domain of the ancestors the cultural contours of this rich tradition honor the genius of these young lives the state of being from whenever whence we emerge um, and there's a proficiency that you talk about in language I have seemingly long forgotten. And then you go on to teach us to pray on page 191. And I love that you start out with great mothering spirit. You know, we enter into the threshold of a new day, longing for fewer reasons to be anxious and aggressive. I, and for me, that's so much of the times, like I hear something like uh, Uvalde and I'm anxious and aggressive. I hear something like Buffalo and it's over and over. It's just a matter of time before we see another George Floyd killed again, right? Because ain't nothing changed. Um, in fact, here in Chicago, uh, what was it? The police officer that killed Laquan McDonald. He's out. He's right. out. He's out of prison. He got out on good time. Right. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've, I'm, I'm dealing with cats who stole something out the corner liquor market who are, who are still sitting in county jail eight years later. Right. Um, can't even afford a trial, but they're still, they've been behind bars dealing with the COVID and all the mess that goes on over there. So anxious and aggressive. I think about that, man. And who, this is a good, this is a good prayer. Um, may we open our eyes to our birthright gifts, the intangibles that verify, um, our origins in you. Um, God of freedom stir within our hearts, a self patience as we pursue this journey of discomfort and confrontation, which I feel so often we as black folk 
have to deal with that on a daily. Just like you said, that hope has to be reinvented. Or the ball was said, "Hell, hope." I feel like we have to reinvent or have to engage with that all the time. Whereas I feel white folks, maybe they'll get it in the class. Maybe they saw a film where they didn't like, you know, the characters, the way they were talking. How do we keep white folks at the table? And 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 ultimately, where do you see change happening as we enter? you know, a, a an era of billionaires going into space on penis rockets, penis-shaped rockets, right? <laughs> uh, where Apple holds $3.1 trillion in, uh, in, in equity and money, uh, and that's more than some countries' GDP. Uh, what, where, where do you, where are you, yeah, what's, uh, yeah, let me leave it at that. Yeah, so... Yeah, man, I, you know, I, I'm with you, man. I, 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 and that that's part of where the prayer came from. Mm. Now, I was waking up and going to bed anxious, right? Mm -hmm. Waking up anxious, going to bed anxious, and aggressive throughout the day, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, and this is not microaggression. This, this is, look, I, I, I had lost touch with my own human centering. Uh, I lost touch with. All of those 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 wonderful things that I named about what how Jesus shows us what to be how to be human because of the aggression and the anxiety and so I'm walking around mad but I'm also walking around scared uh, and and you know I'm not Trayvon Martin uh, you know I I I don't I I, I I've not been followed by the police I've I've, I've never you know I've never had a negative interaction uh with with a with a white co-worker right and, and you know negative in the in the in the in the in the most radical sense microaggressions of course right um but i but there was i was carrying with me the ongoing threat that just exists over black life like i could be next yeah. i could be the next george floyd i could be the next brianna taylor i could be the next sandra bland uh, and, and this is something that I, I had normalized. I had normalized this in my body, right? To the point that I'm, I'm, I'm walking around stiff. Uh, I'm, I'm not sleeping well because I'm taking seriously what's plaguing our, 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 our world. And so for me, it, it, was, it is important for me to enter every single day grounding some of these practices every single day telling myself i do see color and color actually speaks to the full tapestry of of, of god and creation that all colors are in the image of god right so it's a very li a literal way of reading creating an image of god but but i had to tell myself no I do see color and it's important for me to see color mm -hmm. because if I see color, then I'm able to tell myself, no, this person actually has been a victim of structural racism because of X, Y, Z, right? Uh, I, I'm able to look at, I, I teach a class, not teach a class. I run a master's degree program in a New York state prison okay. uh, through New York Theological Seminary. Overwhelming majority of my students are, are, are black and brown, right? Most of them, right. more of them are, 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 are actually Latinx uh, than, 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 than black uh, these, these days, uh, particularly this year. Uh, and 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 to 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 look at this classroom of brilliant men, right? 
this classroom of men who are digesting Foucault and and Karl Barth mm. uh, and and E. Franklin Frazier, right, and devouring them just as as lucidly, uh, just as as vigorously as you would find in any Harvard classroom, any Yale classroom, right? And 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 I and, and I realized that a big reason of why they are here. It's because color actually does matter in this country. Is that that many of them there for nonviolent drug offenses? But I know on the other side of town that police officers did not patrol and do drug busts on that side of town. Although there was way more drug illicit drug content in the white part of town, but the way we police, we police color, and so taking seriously. Color is something I have to tell myself every day, and that provides a sense of hope. Reminding myself that there is some interdependence between white folk, black folk, but across all folk, and reminding myself every single day that poor white folk have been on the underside of whiteness yeah. for yeah. 400 years too. Yeah, and so I have to tell myself. Well, how do I now begin to do what Du Bois said? And that is the black laborer and the white laborer are the greatest potential bedfellows for making this democracy work if we only knew it, right? So telling myself that poor white folk actually have a lot in common with black folk if we could only get them to see it, right? Like coming into those types of conclusions, like there is, like there's some commonality between how you know, even think about my own upbringing uh, in, in or maybe not my own, but thinking about, you know, being raised by a single mother uh, who worked her way through school, became, you know, became a nurse in her late 20s, or a registered nurse in her late 20s, uh, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm in my teenage years almost, when she is now uh, solidly middle to upper middle class, right? But thinking about my, my, you know, the early part of my childhood when I'm wrestling with food insecurity, right? We're on WIC, uh, we're on welfare. Uh, you know, early part of, of, of my life, we have to use my grandparents' address because the school in my area uh, is the bad school, right? That's where the bad kids go, right? Right. But these are the same types of insecurities that many Trump voters approach life with, you know, they choose to blame us instead of blaming the rich white folk that have exploited and extracted from all of us. But under, right. but looking up and saying, there's some commonality between my lived experience and the lived experience of some white folk too, if we can only begin to make that bridge, right? These are, are some of the ways that, that, that help me get at this daily invention of hope and allow me to to breathe beyond uh the the, the tyranny of anxiety and aggression that has the cap- easy capacity to hold me hostage on a daily basis Ooh, i love that this is this is this is amazing man Again, folks, the book is Silencing White Noise, Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race, published by Brazos Press. Uh, Doctor, uh, Pastor, Reverend, this has been an amazing conversation, man. I appreciated uh, you just taking the time out. And, and more importantly, I've appreciated the work that you put into this book. Um, it, it is a, a short read, but it, it packs such a punch 
And I feel like we did a good job of just overviewing it without giving away the, you know, the secret sauce in there. Um, <laughs> folks, go out and buy this book. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. I know it's not released yet, but where can folks find you, Doc? Where can they bring you out and, you know, uh, give you a nice another research grant or, or to write another book and, and, you know, pay a little honorarium the whole nine? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so I can be I can be reached uh, at. Uh, so the website uh, is uh, propheticrevolution.org. Uh, that'll take you right to a page where you can you can engage me, send me a note. Uh, also, you can um, from from there you, you can also request uh, you know one of our services. Um, you know, maybe even talk about a, a book conversation. You, you can go there to do that. Obviously, social media is a great place to find folk. Uh, I, on Twitter and on IG, I'm at Willie Francois three, and on Facebook, I'm just Willie Dwayne Francois the third. Uh, so, so those are ways that you can stay plugged uh, with me. I'm excited about about what this book can do in the world. I think there are enough black, white, brown. Christians who live in the center and to the left that need some resources uh, to, to, to start to topple and abolish these things that are holding our democracy hostage, economic security uh, and sufficiency hostage, but also terrorizing uh, so many individual lives. And, and I think this is a, a resource uh, for those of us who just need a new vocabulary, yeah. who need new practices, who need something to uh, prick their imagination to see what's not been seen before in this country. Mm. Well, and I would 300% agree with that. I think this is a great resource for that. And it comes at a timely uh, you know, point in our era and our history, uh, as as both a country and 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 as black folk in, in general, you know, and 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 whatnot. So, uh, the book. Uh, when is the book supposed to be released? If folks are re- listening in real time, August sixteenth of twenty twenty two this year. August sixteenth of this year. Okay. Uh, the book will be released. Uh, it's available for pre order. Everywhere books are sold. Okay. That's what my publishers tell me. Uh, so so it's available for pre order now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as always, if you listen to this in real time, I'll put the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com, Profane Faith. If you're not listening to this in real time, maybe you listen to this in 2024 and you're like, hey, it's out now. Go get this book. Read it. It's a quick read, but it's go- but it's but it's meaty and it gets right to the point. Thank you again, doctor. Appreciate you. And you uh, we're going to bring you back on. Look forward to that. I look forward to being with you again. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode.